The following broadcast is brought to you by the friends and partners of Revival Ministries International. But today we're going to jump right into the Bible. So I want you to open your Bible to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And today we're going to begin in verse 1. And if it's okay with you, I think I'm going to come down there. Is that okay? So we're going to begin in John chapter 6, verse 1. And Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for this time and the word of God today. Holy Spirit, you're the one that authored this word. And you are really the only one that has the authority to teach it. And so today we look to you as the great teacher, and I ask you to open the scriptures to us until we see them, we feel them, and we are transformed by them. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Thank you. So we're going to begin in John chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover feast of the Jews was nigh, verse 5. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew already what he would do. But today we're going to begin in verse 2, where the Bible says, And a great multitude followed him. Well, if you don't know anything about my ministry, part of my ministry is diving into the Greek language of the New Testament to expand what these verses mean so you have a better picture of what the scriptures say. And when you come to this verse, verse 2 says, and a great multitude followed him. The word multitude by itself describes a massive, massive multitude. But when you add the word great to the front of it, the word great is used as an amplifier. And the only reason you would add the word great to the word multitude is if you're trying to make an extremely dramatic statement. So now you understand the text really means a great, 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 massive, massive multitude followed him. And in fact, when you come to John chapter 6, this was the greatest multitude that had followed Jesus yet in his ministry. And when you come to verse 2, it says, in a great multitude, now you understand the Greek says, and a great, great, massive, massive, massive multitude followed him. And the tense of the word followed literally means they followed and 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 perpetually and habitually followed him. And the tense of the Greek text literally means if Jesus turned north, the entire crowd 
moved north. And with every day, the crowd is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. If Jesus turned west, the whole crowd turned west. If he turned south, the whole crowd turned south. And every day, a great, massive, massive multitude was following and following and following and following. And we know why they were following him, because the verse continues to say, they followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did upon the diseased. And the word saw in Greek agrees with the word followed, which means you would translate it. And a great massive multitude followed and followed and followed and followed and followed him because they were constantly seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And you have to understand the word seen is a form of the Greek word theomai, and it's where you get the word for theater, which means for these people, this was the greatest theater they had ever seen in their lives. They didn't want to miss one act of the play. They wanted to see everything Jesus did. And because every day Jesus was doing something miraculous they had never seen before, no one wanted to miss one act of the performance. And therefore, they were following and following and following and following because they were perpetually seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. But the word did is a form of the Greek word poieo. The word poieo in Greek carries the idea of creativity, creativity, which means in addition to the normal miracles of healing someone that was sick, Jesus was releasing creative power, which means he was creating eyes where there were no eyes. He was growing limbs where there were no limbs. And in fact, it goes on to say, which he did on them that were diseased. The word on in Greek is the preposition epi. It describes an explosion of divine power. It was like a visitation of heaven literally exploding upon the multitudes. Well, you know, it's very interesting. Because when you come to John chapter, 20, chapter 21, verse 25, John ends the gospel of John by saying, if it were possible... To write down all the miracles that Jesus did, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But if you read this in the Greek text, you understand that the Greek actually says, if it were possible, and it means, of course, it's not possible, but let's just say it was possible. If it was possible, Jesus did so many wonders, the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. So let's talk about how many miracles did Jesus do. Well, if you take the four Gospels, you count from the birth of Jesus to his ascension. How many days do you think we have a record of, of Jesus' life in the four Gospels? I didn't say how many years. I said how many days. Of course, it covers at least 33 years. But of those 33 years, how many actual days do we have a snapshot of in the four Gospels? And scholars have debated about this. Some debate that possibly there are 27 days. Some say maybe as many as 52 days. But if it's 27 or 52, that is just a fragment 
of his life, and we do not even have one entire record of one complete day in the Gospels. All we have is snapshots of what he did at certain moments in 27 to 52 days. And it took four Gospels to record what Jesus just did in little fragments of those days. So now we understand why John said, if it were possible, of course it is not. But if it were possible to record everything that Jesus did, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And now we find from verse 2, this crowd was following and following and following and following and following because they were perpetually, constantly seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing his miracles epi that was exploding upon them that were diseased. Well, that's already quite amazing. But then we come to verse 3. And in verse 3, the Bible tells us, John chapter 6, verse 3, and Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Well, very near to this place, there was a mountain. We've already read that Jesus was near the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. And that is where Jesus had been ministering for many, many days, and the crowd was following and following and following and following. But now in some way, which the Bible does not tell us, Jesus and the disciples have separated from the multitude, and they've gone up on the side of a mountain to recline. And actually, when you read this in the Greek text, it says there he sat with his disciples. But the Greek text actually says there he laid down with his disciples. We're going to see later in verse 10, there was much grass in the place. And from the top of that mountain, they could look down and they had a panoramic view on the Sea of Galilee below. They could feel the cool, refreshing breezes blowing across their faces. And now after days and days of intense ministry, Jesus and his disciples have separated just for a few moments of relaxation and refreshment. But from where they are seated, they can look down to the bottom of the hill, and at the bottom of the hill, next to the Sea of Galilee, was a highway. The highway is still there today. And in fact, today, if you visit Israel and you want to go to the north of Galilee, you're going to travel on that ancient highway, which was called the Via Maris. Well, the next verse importantly says, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Where there were three feasts a year when everyone was commanded to go to the city of Jerusalem. And so if you lived in the north of Israel, you had to go south to the city of Jerusalem. And the primary highway from the north was a road called the Via Maris. It began in the city of Damascus. It came all the way through the middle of Israel. Eventually it turned and went over to the city of Cairo. But if you lived in the north of Israel and you wanted to go to the city of Jerusalem, there was only one road for you to take, and it was this highway, which was at the very bottom of the hill, just below where Jesus and his disciples are now reclining and resting. And now as Jesus looks down the hill from where they are, they can literally see tens of thousands of people that are walking on that highway from the north of Israel en route to Jerusalem because the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. And apparently someone in the crowd somehow discovered that Jesus, the miracle worker, 
is right up there on the top of that mountain. So now Jesus watches in amazement as the entire river of people that are moving south suddenly take a detour. They're leaving the highway, and they're beginning to walk up the hill, and that's what we find next. The Bible says, and there he sat with his disciples. Now look at the next verse. And when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him. The word saw is again the Greek word theomai, which means Jesus looked at this like it was a spectacular event. This was amazing. Though great multitudes were already following him, this was a multitude that exceeded any multitude he had ever had in his ministry. And when you come to verse 5, it says he lifted up his eyes and saw with amazement a great company. The word company, again, is enough by itself, but if you add the word great, it's an amplifier, which means this was a massive, massive company of people coming unto him. Unto, in Greek, is the word pros, which means Jesus knew they were making a trail right toward him. They weren't coming to see the apostles. They were making a trail directly to him. And when Jesus saw this massive multitude, which was about 50,000 people, I'll show you this in just a moment. He turned to Philip and said, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Well, when you read this story in the other Gospels, the other Gospels tell us that the disciples became so alarmed that they said, Lord, what do you mean by bread? There's no villages, there's no towns, there's no markets nearby. And yet Jesus said, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? And the following verse says, and this he said to do what? To prove him. Everybody say proof. Another translation says, this he said to expose him. For he knew himself already what he was going to do, which means if Jesus knew what he was going to do, he really didn't need to ask this question. It's okay. But Jesus asked the question because he was trying to expose something or reveal something in the level of the apostles' faith. Now, if the crowd was following Jesus and following Jesus and following Jesus because they were seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing the miracles that he creatively did upon them that were diseased, then let me ask you, how many miracles and signs and wonders did the apostles see? They saw more than anyone else because they were working at Jesus' side. They were working the crowds. They were working in the prayer lines. They were there to see it all. But they had never seen Jesus multiply food. This was something they had never seen. And you would think that after they had seen Jesus turn water into wine, raise the dead to life again, after all the things they had seen and seen and seen and seen, you would think that they would have said, Lord, we don't know how you're going to feed this multitude, but we know who you are. You're Jesus. You're the miracle worker. You can do anything. But rather than rush to faith, 
They fell into a state of anxiety and fret and began working the crowds, seeing if they could somehow find enough food to feed the multitude. And this question from Jesus, when shall we buy bread that these may eat, revealed that even though they had lived in his presence and they had seen him do so much, there was still an area in their faith that had a deficit that needed to come a little higher. Jesus only asked the question for the sake of self-discovery. He wanted them to realize there was more room for them to grow in their faith. Now I understand this because in the 80s, Denise and I began our ministry. We began traveling around the United States. It's very interesting. Our stories are very similar to your pastors. We found out yesterday we were even married on the same day in the same year. And when they were getting started in their ministry, Denise and I were getting started in our ministry. We had been pastoring a little church in the state of Arkansas. No one knew who we were. And actually, it was a church that the Lord never told me to start. You know, when you start a project that God doesn't authorize, you have to pay for it by yourself. That was an expensive lesson. Well, finally, I woke up and the Lord spoke to me and told me that we were to begin to travel and to teach the Word of God. Well, no one even knew who we were because we'd been living in the state of Arkansas in a little Ishmael church where we were very unsuccessful. And now the Lord tells me that we are to travel and teach the Word of God. But miraculously, doors begin to open, and Denise and I begin to travel, me and Denise. At that time, we had two little boys, Paul and Philip Renner, who has been here many times. We got in our little Isuzu Imark. How many of you remember that little car? And we began to travel across the United States preaching in small churches, Bible studies. We even preached in funeral homes. Any door that would open, we would preach. You know, I'm amazed by these preachers that are so picky about where they're going to preach. But when you're just starting your ministry, you walk through any door that opens. You've got to walk through any door that opens. Well, miraculously, our ministry began to grow. And I began to write books. I wrote my first book, which was called Seducing Spirits and Doctrines of Demons. And against the odds, in 30 days, my first book was a best-selling book. We could not print that book fast enough because so many thousands of orders were coming in for that book. It was a book that was created in due season. After that, I wrote my next book, which was Living in the Combat Zone, and just like Seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, living in the combat zone, took off, and it began to sell and sell and sell and sell. Then I wrote my next book, which was called Merchandising the Anointing. Then I wrote my next book, which was called Dress to Kill. Have any of you ever heard of the book Dress to Kill? It is around the world by millions and millions and millions of copies and still sells to this day as if it was a bestseller. Denise and I were living in our dreams and by this time, we were doing about 450 meetings a year. Well, you put a pencil to it. There's not that many days in a year. So you understand we were just living from service to service to service, multiple services a day. And, 
everything was just going great. And then we bought the house of our dreams in Tulsa, and our house was on Preacher Row. T.L. Osborne was our neighbor. Kenneth Hagen was our neighbor. Oral Roberts lived around the corner, and Oral was our neighbor for years, Oral and Richard. And we were just having such a good time doing what we were doing, stepping into our dream. And then one day, a friend said to me, Rick, the first Bible school in the history of the Soviet Union has just opened. This was in the spring of 1991. The Soviet Union was still in force. And he said, we're going to be taking a trip to teach in that Bible school, and your teaching gift is so important. We feel like you need to join us on that trip. I said, no, I, I don't want to go to the nations of the world. I'm not interested in that. We had missionaries in our family. I just didn't ever see myself on the mission field. I said, no, no I, I'm not going to do that. And he said, all right, you just stay in Tulsa. Enjoy your pretty house on Preacher Row while the rest of the world goes to hell, but we're going to go to the nations of the world. And by the time he was finished, I felt so guilty for saying no that he conned me into saying yes. And the next thing I knew, I was on an airplane with five men I hardly knew flying to the Soviet Union. What am I doing? And when the plane landed in the Soviet Union, and we disembarked from that aircraft. My first thought was, why were we so afraid of the Soviet Union? It was completely collapsed. It was like a derelict nation. The streets were broken. The buildings were in disrepair. When I checked into my hotel, if you can call it a hotel, it was five cents a night for the room. When I went to pull the shower curtain back and I saw the interior of the shower, I decided I was not going to take a shower in that hotel because it looked like it was filled with disease. And when I tried to pull the curtains open on my window in my hotel room, they were so rotten, they just ripped off right in my hands. I had no curtains the entire week I was in that room. And the next morning, I was awakened by the whole building shaking, shaking, shaking. I thought, what is this? I looked out the window of my hotel, and it was a Soviet army tank that was rolling down the middle of the street. So huge, the buildings were shaking as it rolled by. Went to breakfast the next morning. There was so little food. Basically, it was cookies and tea. That's all there was. And everyone in the restaurant was whispering so quietly. You could hardly hear anybody speaking, and they were whispering so quietly because they were afraid of being overheard that what they said may be reported to the authorities. Back in those days, it was the Soviet Union. And back in those days, there were spies everywhere listening to everything, especially in hotels. But the first morning I came into the class to teach, and in front of me were 220 students who had come to this Bible school the first in 70 years. 
Most of those students were the children or the grandchildren of parents or grandparents who had been sent to the gulag or to prisons for their faith. And their parents and their grandparents prayed that a day would come when their kids and their grandkids could study. And now those kids were sitting in that class in fulfillment of those prayers. And when they began to worship, I was so humbled to be with people that had paid such a price for their faith. And I remember when I got up to walk to the platform to speak to them and looked out into their faces, I felt, what am I doing speaking to you? You need to speak to me. These were people who understood covenant on a level beyond anything I had ever understood about covenant. The Pentecostal church back in those days always kissed each other when they left their meetings. Even men kissed men, and that may seem very strange. But back in those days when you left a meeting, you never knew if you would see that person again. And so their level of covenant and appreciation for each other was beyond anything I'd ever seen in my life. But when I opened my Bible to teach my first lesson in that Bible school in the Soviet Union, I heard the Holy Spirit say, Welcome to your new home. Well, I know the voice of the Lord, and I knew that that was what the Lord had said. Welcome to your new home. I nearly lost my breath, and when I looked out into that room that was dilapidated, the floors were broken, the chairs were broken, there were hardly any light bulbs in the room, people who had suffered, 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 and now the Lord said to me, this is your new home, these are your new people. And the rest of the week while we were there, I remember saying, Lord, I didn't even want to come on this trip, and now you're telling me that this is my new home? And you know, when you hear the Lord say something to you like that, then you begin to look at things through different eyes, because now I'm looking at that world wondering how my family would fit into that world in those broken homes. You would go to the grocery store. There was no food in the grocery store. There were no drugs in the pharmacy. It was completely, completely devastated by the time that you came to the early 90s. And now the Holy Spirit told me that I was needed there and I was to relocate my family there. And I remember saying, but Lord, what will happen to my ministry if I obey you? Now, what is amazing to me is prior to that time, what do you think I was preaching on in those 450 meetings? I was preaching about surrender and sacrifice and doing whatever the Lord told you to do. But now the Lord was telling me something to do he had never said to me before. And you know, the easiest thing to do is to say you'll give up everything for Jesus when he's never asked you to give up anything. But when he asks you to give up something, that's when you find out the level of your faith. That's why I understand this. Jesus said this to prove him. Jesus didn't need to ask this question. He already knew the level of their faith. He wanted the disciples to find out they needed to come up a little bit higher. And when Jesus said to me, welcome to your new home, Mr. Faith Man, 
who'd been teaching on surrender, sacrifice, and obedience, I found myself in a struggle beyond anything I had ever faced in my life. I came home from that trip thinking to myself, if I don't tell anybody what the Lord said to me, <laughs> then I can disobey and no one will know I'm disobedient. Just me and the Lord. Only he will know. So I came home and I didn't even tell Denise what the Lord had said to me. But now it was like a hook had been set in my heart and I began studying the Russian language. Every night I was studying Russian, Russian, Russian. And Denise would say, why are you studying Russian? I'd say, don't ask that question. I don't want to answer that question. But every night I'm going through these Russian words trying to pull me into alignment with the plan of God for my life. How many of you know that sometimes... It takes time to get into alignment with God. I didn't want this to be the will of God for my life, but I said to Denise, finally, Denise, the Lord has spoken to me. We're to leave our house. We're to leave our dream that we're living in. And we're to move to the Soviet Union. Well, Denise had grown up with a fear of communists. <laughs> because back in those days when evangelists came to your church, they terrified congregations by asking, if communism came to America, would you be faithful for your faith? I mean, the evangelists would just uh, terrify us with those questions. And Denise had always wondered, would I be faithful for my faith if the communists came to America? And now I'm telling Denise, I'm going to move her and our three sons to where the communists are. <laughs> but still, there was such a struggle inside me, such a struggle. I said to Denise, I'm going to talk to our pastor. Our pastor was Bob Yandian, very logical, level-headed man. I'm going to tell him what I think we're supposed to do. And if he tells me I'm wrong, then I'm going to take that as a word from God that I'm off. And we're not supposed to go to the Soviet Union. So I sat down with Pastor Bob and I said, Pastor Bob, I, I just feel that we're supposed to move our family to the Soviet Union. And he said, you know, Rick, I just get a witness from the Lord that that's right. I was so sorry I met him for lunch. And yet I was still struggling with the will of God. Is this really the will of God to leave what we're experiencing, to leave our home and move my family into that dilapidated mess? So finally I said, okay, Denise, one last, one last test. I'm going to ask our sons what they think about this. Our oldest son was eight years old, Paul. Our second son was Philip. Philip was six. Our youngest son was Joel. He was two. They didn't even know what the Soviet Union was. But I put them on the couch, and I stood in front of them. And I said, all right, boys, what you say to me is very important. Your mother and I are thinking about moving 
our family to the Soviet Union. Do you know what is the Soviet Union? No, Daddy. We don't know what is the Soviet Union. I said, well, the Soviet Union is a country that hates Christians like us. And they kill Christians, and they put Christian parents in prison. And if we move to the Soviet Union, there's a very great chance that your mother and I could be put in prison or killed, and you will end up as orphans. <laughs> Do you understand? They said, yes, Daddy. Yes, Daddy. And I was just sure by this time they would say, no, 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 Daddy. No, Daddy, don't do this. So I said, do any of you have something to say? And Philip was sitting in the middle. He raised his hands for permission to speak. And I said, yes, Philip. He said, well, Daddy, you've always told us to obey God. And everybody has to die someday anyway. So we might as well die doing what God has told us to do. And that was the moment I finally accepted the fact that God really was telling us to move to the Soviet Union. Even our kids were willing to die. But it took me months to get into alignment. Here I thought I was a man of obedience, a man of sacrifice, a man of surrender, until Jesus asked me to do something he'd never asked me to do before. And it exposed me that there was something in me that needed to come higher. And not only that, Jesus wanted to show me something I had never seen yet. But now wait. Look what the verse tells us next. The next verse says, Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. And as your pastor has told you in times past, I'm sure, penny worth is the word denarius. The word denarius was the salary for one entire day's wage. So you could actually paraphrase this, Lord, if we were able to accumulate 200 days of salary, even 200 days of salary is not enough that we could buy bread to feed every one of them a little, and the Greek says a crumb. Then in the next verse, one of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, there is a lad here which hath five barley loaves, and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Well, when Jesus asked the question, where shall we buy bread to feed these, rather than rush forward and say, Lord, we don't know how you're going to do it, but we trust you. You can do anything. Instead, they moved into what I call the arm of the flesh. They began working the crowds to see if somehow they can find enough food out there to feed this multitude. And now Andrew comes running up the side of the hill and says, Lord, 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 look what I have found here is a lad that has five barley loaves and two small fishes. Well, the word lad in Greek is the word paiderion. The word for a little boy is the word pais, 
which would describe a boy probably about 12 years old. But when the word pious becomes piderion, which is used in this verse, it describes a boy probably between the age of four and six year old. So this is just a little bitty boy. He says, here is a piderion, a little bitty boy with two small fish and five barley loaves. Well, when I was growing up in church, how many of you grew up in church? I grew up a Southern Baptist. And when I was going to Sunday school as a little child, I would sit in my little miniature chair back in the Sunday school. I was a sunbeam. That's what we had in the Baptist movement. And I loved it when they told Bible stories. And one of my favorite stories was the story of the little boy with the two fish and the five loaves. And they would always show us a fully illustrated piece of art of this little boy. But in the art that they showed us, it looked like a 12-year-old boy carrying a great big basket with what looked like two huge fish and five great big loaves of bread, like big French loaves of bread. But when I saw that this word lad is the Greek word piderion, which describes a little bitty boy probably between four and six years old, I began to realize there's something wrong with the picture. Why would a little bitty boy be walking around with two great big fish and five great big loaves of bread? So I decided to dive deeper into this verse and found out loaves of bread is the Greek word krithinus. It describes the most fragile of bread. And in fact, if you want to know how big it is, it's about the size of a trisket, and a better translation would be crackers. These were five crackers. Well, that made me wonder then, how big were the fish? And I discovered the fish that are described here is a very small fish about the size of a minnow, so small it will fit on top of the cracker. So now you understand why Andrew says, but what are they among so many? He literally says, Lord, I've just found this little boy with five crackers and two minnows. Here's what we have found to feed the multitude. And then he realizes how stupid this contribution is. And he says, huh, but what are they among so many? But when Jesus saw five crackers and two minnows, he said, have the men sat down. And when you read this in the other Gospels, it says that he had them sat down by family groups, by tens, by twenties, by fifties, or he told the apostles to get organized, have everybody sit down by their family clans, tell everybody food will be served soon. We have five crackers. We have two minnows. It's just a matter of time before we're going to be serving food. And now the apostles just blindly obeyed knowing all there is is five crackers and two minnows. They're working the crowds, saying just on pure faith and obedience, if you'll be suited, the food will be served soon. And I'm sure they must have been wondering in their mind, what is Jesus doing? This is false advertisement. There is no food up here except five crackers and two minnows, and we are deluding these people into thinking that they're going to eat. But in obedience... They begin to have the people sit down by tens, by twenties, by fifties. And the Bible says, look at the, look at the verse, now there was much grass in the place. So when Jesus saw the situation, he said, what a wonderful event. 
There's grass, there's breezes, there's five crackers, there's two minnows. What a perfect place for a picnic. Jesus saw opportunity. The disciples saw lack. And notice what the next verse says. Verse 10. And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. The word men that is used here is the Greek word andres, which only refers to men's or heads of households. So there were at least 5,000 families represented. Well, you got to remember the Jews believed children were a blessing from the Lord. It was not unusual for a Jewish family to have as many as 10 children per family. Plus, grandpas and grandmas came because they were all going to the Passover. Everyone had to go. So when you add the numbers together, it's possible there were 50,000 people in this crowd, and the disciples knew all they had was five crackers and two minnows. Verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves. Is that what your translation says? The Greek is the word elaban. It does not mean to take. It means to receive. A better translation would be Jesus received the loaves. Jesus will never take anything from anyone, but he will receive anything that you put into his hand. Now a little boy between four and six years old finds himself standing in front of Jesus, whom he probably doesn't even know, and Jesus says, little boy, can I have your loaves and your crackers? And when you understand these were crackers and minnows, this boy had pocketed a snack that he was going to eat on the road on the way to the city of Jerusalem. Now Jesus is asking for his snack, and the snack belonged to him. He really could have said, these are my crackers. These are my minnows. I've been waiting all day to eat this. No, 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 no. I, I'm not going to give them. And if he had decided to keep his crackers and to keep his minnows, Jesus would have laid hands on him, probably blessed him, said, enjoy them, eat them. And that would have been the history of the loaves and the crackers. But the little boy surrendered. And Jesus received. Jesus received. This makes me think about me and Denise. There's five in our family. Every time I think about these loaves, these crackers, I think about me and Denise and Paul and Philip and Joel. Here we had plans for our life. We were on a good trajectory, enjoying everything that we were doing. Now, Jesus was asking us to give him our lives to do something different. And I am convinced that if I had said no to the Lord, the Lord would have blessed me, but I would have never known what would have happened if I had surrendered. And the little boy placed what he had into the hands of Jesus, and Jesus received them. And the Bible says Jesus gave thanks, the Greek word eucharistos. It describes one who turns his head upward, and eucharistos, thanksgiving, just begins to flow 
out of his heart, which means Jesus never really looked at what was in his hands. Jesus turned his eyes upward to the Father. Jesus knew that he had in his hands just five crackers and two minnows, but when he looked to the Father, rather than focus on the very little that was in his hands, he began to bless El Shaddai. He began to bless the God that is more than enough. Jesus began to bless the Father, and as Jesus blessed the Father, the disciples began to take from his hands and take from his hands and take from his hands and take from his hands. It was an unending stream of crackers and minnows. It kept flowing and flowing as Jesus kept his eye fixed on the resources of heaven. What was in his hands just kept multiplying. How much did he multiply? Well, look at what the Bible says. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, distributed to the disciples, and the disciples then to them that were sat down, and likewise of the fishes, how much? What does it say? As much as they would. Then look at verse 12. Verse 12 will tell you exactly how much they ate. It says, when they were filled. In Greek, this is called pluperfect. It means to be doubly filled, or we find that Jesus multiplied so much, people ache like gluttons. Now they're laying on their side, hurting, saying, why did we eat so many of those crackers? Why did we eat so many of those fish when they were doubly filled? That's how much came out of his hands. And when they were filled, doubly filled, he saith unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. It's very important because we find Jesus is a good steward of everything that he has. And Jesus doesn't even want a fragment of this to be lost. And verse 13 says, therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Well, what do you think? was the reason they had just happened to have 12 baskets. The word basket that is used here is the word which was used to describe a suitcase in the first century. These apostles were not prepared to take up this big offering. All they had was their bags that they carried all their things in. Now they're dumping out all their clothes, all their personal belongings. They're taking their luggage, walking through the crowd, picking up the fragments that remained. And then amazingly, the next verse, and this is where I'm going to close. The next verse says, then those men, what men? The disciples. The disciples who had seen him raise the dead. They'd seen him cleanse leopards. They'd seen him turn water into wine. They'd seen everything, but they had never seen this kind of multiplication. Then those men, the disciples, when they had seen this miracle, which Jesus did, they said, this of a truth is that prophet which should come into the world. It brought them higher in their faith. It gave them a new revelation. Now, you know, as I think about me and Denise, my precious wife, and our family, in the years that we've lived in the Soviet Union, we've been there 33 years. We have seen the dead raised, 
Wish I could tell you that story. That is an amazing story. We have seen every miracle that you can imagine. We have packed the biggest stadiums. We've held conferences, crusades. We started the first Christian television network in the history of the Soviet Union. On March the 4th, we're launching a federal channel, which means it's going to be like ABC, CBS, or NBC. It's going to go into every single home in Russia. Denise and I have become legends in our land. We are connected to the government. It is beyond anything I could have ever dreamed or imagined. And when I think that I could have said, no, I'm just going to stay here, live in my nice house, continue traveling 450 meetings a year, meeting after meeting after meeting, and that if I had said no, I would have missed, I would have missed a story so phenomenal that when we wrote our autobiography, we called it unlikely because what has happened to us is unlikely. It's just beyond the realm of possibility what has happened with us. But I could have said, Lord, these are my crackers. This is what I want to do. And no, I do not want to do that. And I would have missed everything. I would have missed it all. And friend, I want to tell you, if there's anything that Jesus is asking you to do, he's really not trying to take something from you. He's not in the business of taking anything from anybody. But if you'll take what you have, maybe it's your money, maybe it's your talent, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's just you, but if you will take who you are, if you will take what you have, and if you will put them into the hand of Jesus... Jesus will multiply you to feed a multitude, a multitude. Now, you know, when we read this story, and this is where I'm going to stop, most people talk about the miracle of multiplication, and truly, it's miraculous. But when I read this chapter, I always walk away thinking about the little boy. Because the little boy is really the only one that knew where this miracle came from. I can see the little boy walking through the thousands, looking at people laying on their sides, holding their sides, saying, why did we eat so much? He's looking at people complaining because they've eaten and eaten and eaten. He sees the fragments that remain, and the little boy is the only one who knows where this came from, and he was the only one who could say, wow, that used to be my crackers and my minnows. He knew like no one else. When I look at your pastors, when I look at me and Denise, knowing where we started, what we did not have when we began. Nobody saw us back in those days. So Denise and I know our story better than anybody else. When your pastor tells you they didn't have a car, 
God had to miraculously provide for them a car just to drive to get into their ministry. Somebody gave them an offering of asparagus. Ay, 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 ay. You didn't have anything for what you're doing today, but you did have surrender. And when you stand back later and look back, you will say, I am so grateful that we didn't eat our crackers because we would have never known. We would have never known what God wanted to do in our life. But you are the only one who can put them into the hands of Jesus. And if you'll take them in your hand, he won't take it from you, but he's willing to receive and once you take whatever you have, regardless of its size, once you put it into the hand of Jesus, that is what triggers the miracle of multiplication. I want you to put your hand on your heart. I want to pray for you. And then I'm going to give this to Pastor Rodney. And Denise and I are so thankful that we could be with you today. And tonight I'm going to be ministering on the last days. It's going to be good tonight. But Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for the river. We thank you for Pastor Rodney and Adonica. Thank you for their family. Lord, when I stand in this place and look at this pavilion and all these people and meetings that they're holding around the world, Lord, it all started with somebody who said, Lord, we're yours. And Father, I pray for people in this room this morning that have not yielded their crackers and their minnows yet. And Holy Spirit, I pray you work in their heart until they come into a place of alignment and they say, Lord, we're, just, we're going to surrender whatever it is that you want, us, our talent, our family, our home, our money, whatever it is that you want, Lord, you won't take it, but Lord, we're placing it into your hands. And Father, I ask you to take it, receive it, multiply it beyond their imaginations. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Several things we're going to do right now. Just want you to bow your heads if you would. Across this field today, the Lord's speaking to people. first thing we do is to give him our heart. Maybe you've walked into this pavilion today and you say, Pastor, I've never given my life to Jesus, but I want to respond. I want to give my heart to him. I want to ask you a question. What would happen if today was your last day on the earth? If you went home tonight and put your head on your pillow in the middle of the night, you just stopped breathing. Where would you go? Where would you spend eternity? I want you to know there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. You don't have to go to the devil's hell because 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross, the price was paid and the blood was shed. And just like that old song says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all the guilty stain. Today, the power of sin will be broken. The power of guilt and shame will be removed from your life. You might have walked here one way, but you're leaving another way. Today, he calls you. Today will be the greatest decision that you can ever make. And for you that are watching by way of television, maybe you might be watching around the world. 
Will you surrender to him and say, yes, Lord, yes. I have really nothing to give. My life is broken. My life would be thrown away. People would not even consider me of any worth. But if you will take this life that's been battered and torn by sin, then I will gladly put, you in my hand, put, me, put myself in your hands. And if you'll take me and multiply me, whatever you want to do. Because I've tried the way of the world, and I've tried the way of sin, and it's a dead end. But today I surrender. Maybe you're here and you say, Pastor, I did give my life to Jesus in days gone by, but I'm not serving the Lord like I should. I've allowed the things of the world to come in. There was a time when I was on fire for God, but I lost that. I lost my joy and my peace. I allowed the things that I never thought I would ever allow in, but it came. Maybe there's things that are hidden. Pride, unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, jealousy, lust. These things that clog the heart of man, but today you say, I'm going to be free. I'm walking from this field free today. Maybe it's not hidden. Maybe it's something outward that everyone can see, which makes it worse. Because you say, well, what's the use? Everybody knows what I've done. But I want you to know God is a God of a second chance and a new beginning. And he says, come. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Will you come to him? Maybe you're in this place or you're watching by television. You say, Pastor, the last number of years, major storms have come against my life. A sudden divorce, a bankruptcy, the loss of a loved one, a sudden illness, the betrayal of a close friend, the loss of a job. Something happened that shook my world. But today, I'm coming back and I'm going to surrender my life afresh to him. And then lastly, if you're here and you say, look, I love the Lord, it's not even a question. But I don't have the assurance that I'm a child of God and I have a constant battle between my head and my heart. The devil's always lying to me that I'm not saved. But the Lord says, I want you to come. And today you're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're a child of God. Listen, there's even people here today battling sin and you don't even know how to be free from it. And the Lord said, I'm going to bring you out of it. I'm going to bring you out of what you found yourself in because today is your day of deliverance and freedom. If you fit into any one of these categories, I want to pray with you and for you right where you are. Quickly, just put your hand up and say, pray for me. I need Jesus. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. Just slip it up high. Thank you. God bless you. Just raise up high all across the pavilion. The Spirit of God's talking to people. You feel your heart pounding away. God's talking to you. Don't delay. Don't leave it. This is the opportunity now, now, now for you to put yourself in the hands of Jesus. Somebody said, I'll do it next week. No, today. Is there anybody else that would say with the upper of hand, Pastor, that's me, please. I'm, I'm surrendering my life. Thank you. Thank you. You may put those hands down. I want you to look at me, if you would, please. On this side, which is the western side of the pavilion, if you didn't raise your hand but want to be included, just slip that hand up and say, pray for me right now. Don't leave me out of it. I want to be included. The hand right at the back, I see it. Anybody else? Slip it up high and say, yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Thank you. This center 
part of the pavilion, you didn't raise your hand, but want to be included, just slip your hand up right now and say, include me. Thank you, sir. Thank you, dear lady. Thank you, dear lady. Anybody else? Quickly, quickly, slip it up high and say, yes, that's me. And then on this, the eastern side of the pavilion, if you didn't raise your hand but want to be included, slip that hand up high. Thank you, sir. Thank you right at the back. I see your hand. Anybody else? Anyone else? I want every person that raised your hand, if you would stand to your feet right now, all across the venue, quickly stand, 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 stand. We're going to pray together. I'm going to ask you, if you by yourself, bring your personal belongings and come right down and stand around the altar. We're going to pray right now. Come. He's calling you. Come. 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 To follow Jesus. I have decided... Turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. turning back you can take the whole world but give me Jesus you can take the whole world but give me Jesus can take the whole world, but give me Jesus. No turning back. I want you to look at me if you would please. Today, you've not come to man, but you've come to the Lord. And if you mean business with God, God means business with you. I've had the privilege of doing this in 92 countries of the world. And everywhere I go, people come up to me and they say, I prayed that prayer with you. And then they tell me what great things the Lord has done for them. So we're going to pray this prayer together. I want you just to close your eyes and raise your right hand to heaven. That's where your help comes from. Pray this after me. Say, Father, I come to you in the precious name 
of your son, Jesus. Lord, you said in your word, if I confess with my mouth, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, and I believe in my heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, I will be saved. So, Father, right now, I confess Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. Come into my heart right now. Take out the stony heart. Put in a heart of flesh. Wash me. Cleanse me. Change me. Fill me. Use me. Let me never be the same again. I turn my back on the world. I turn my back on sin. And I follow you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for shedding your blood for me. Thank you that on the third day you rose for me. And thank you that you're coming back again for me. From this day on, I'll never be the same again. I confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He is my Lord and my Savior. And right now, by faith in the finished work of the cross and by the shed blood of Jesus, I'm saved. Thank you, Lord, for saving me now. Now just lift both hands and let me pray over you. Father, I pray that you would seal them now by your blood and by your spirit, that on that day, not one will be missing. Raise them up to be mighty men and women of God and use them to impact this generation, we pray. And on that day, they will hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And I thank you for that now. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen, amen, amen. This program has been brought to you by the friends and partners of Revival Ministries International in Tampa, Florida. For more information on the ministry of Drs. Rodney and Adonica Howard Brown, or for additional resources, visit revival.com.